And welcome back to the Global Inquirer. I'm your host, Nick Mortensen. Before we begin, the Global Inquirer would like to thank UVA Sustainability for all their help and collaboration on this episode. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to examine how trends are affecting real lives. Today, I'm sitting down with researchers Tyler Hinkle and Roma Chitko to... I don't really know what you guys are doing this week. I keep on seeing messages that you were chasing around garbage trucks. Can you kind of tell me what that was all about? Okay, first off, Nick, that's recycling trucks. It's a big difference. But the question is, when you recycle stuff, have you ever thought about where it goes? No, not, not at all, actually. Well... That's what we were wondering. So I called the guy who's in charge of it. We went and talked to him. My name is Sonny Beal. I've uh, been with the university for 31 years. My current position is the recycling program superintendent for the university, which includes the medical center as well as the academic side. I'm also responsible for the outdoor trash collections, so the waste contracts for both academic and medical sides and tried to divert as much material from landfills as possible. In doing so, we found that we were also creating opportunities for light pollution reductions, energy reductions, water conservation, material management practices. And as a whole, we, we have 23 of us when we're fully staffed, including myself and two supervisors and a program coordinator that handle the entire university community, which is roughly 16 million square feet of building space, about 550 buildings, and we have a presence in all of it, trying to capture materials before it ends up in a landfill. A lot of the stuff he talked about, I mean, he, he knew a lot about what's happened with the policies and how it's really not a matter of collection that's being affected, but more so selling it afterwards the China Green Fence, now the National Sword, in them trying to clean up their commodities and what they're bringing into their own countries and their environment, well, cleaning up their environment, I should say. It's been one of those scenarios that people are now thinking that we've got to approach things differently than shipping it off to someone else. China was the first on, on board to set limits of less than a half a percent contamination that they would accept. That had to be inspected prior to shipment. And Thailand is following suit. Korea is following suit. Vietnam is also following suit with reducing the contamination allowances and limiting what they're actually bringing into their countries. So, you know, where we used to see revenue rebates for plastics or very little plastic uh, rebates, but uh, we would see metal rebates, paper and cardboard rebates, as much as $30,000 a month five years ago. We're now lucky to see $3,000 in return rebates on this material because markets are at such a premium now. In our current contracts, we're still able to collect all the materials that I've mentioned. We collect one through seven plastics, and we co-mingle them. We do separate out the plastic liners because the mills are having troubles with that gumming up their machines, and plastic film can be sent to places like uh, plastic lumber manufacturers. We have one in Winchester that is one of the first to produce aesthetic lumber and benches from mixing plastics with 
wood chips and wood fibers, sawdust basically. When I first saw this product in 1995, they used a display where they were running water over top of this plastic lumber and because the wood fibers were so large in this product it would cause them to swell and create and uh, act as a non-skid surface so you weren't slipping on something like you would like a linoleum floor or a well waxed tile floor with your plastics recycling no one will accept anything that's had automotive fluids in it antifreeze, windshield washer, things like that. They just, especially oil, even though plastics are a byproduct of oil refinery. And so a lot of the vendors can't buy as much because they can't use it for anything. He explained how stuff is changed into stuff that's reused. One of the quickest items to recycle is an aluminum can in about 45 days from the time it's put into a recycling container until the time it's back on a shelf filled with materials can be between 45 and 60 days. That and steel are two of the most recyclable or recycled materials in the world because they can be renewed from its own process. Recycling a pound of aluminum can save you roughly 96 hours of electricity. You can run a computer for eight hours on a single can recycled for the energy saved. Uh, That same pound of aluminum recycled saves about 60 gallons of water. And if you think about it, depending on your washing machine, how many loads of laundry could you get out of it? So UVA has a couple of times during the year that they actually separate the materials out uh, or they try to increase sustainable opportunities by having little contests like can you guess and we'll supply a bale of various sizes so the question is always different how many cans are in this bale i think the newer the cans the lighter the weight they are people are finding manufacturers are finding that they can keep the same integrity of their bottles and cans by lightweighting that material which is great because they don't have to use as much material to produce one can. Back in the 70s, you had an aluminum can that was, you know, it took 28 cans to make a pound. And now I think it's like 32 or 34 cans that makes a pound. So where it used, you know, they've gone from half ounce blanks or even heavier blanks to produce an aluminum can They've lightweighted it enough and changed the structure or the shape of the container to keep that integrity. I'm guilty of using single-use containers myself, but uh, that's for a matter of convenience where I can go and pick up a few. I pay a dollar for three Pringles containers, and then I take the containers home to my grandson and he builds little towers and stuff for his Angry Birds. But if we stopped using the single-use containers, those single-use water bottles, we think about a plastic bottle, whether it's a soda bottle or water bottle or juice bottle, if you can imagine one-fourth of that filled with crude oil, that's how much oil it takes to produce that one water bottle, that one container. You know, that's a lot of oil. 
but if we stopped using some of that material and started re you know using reusable containers like reusable cups and mugs and and that type of material we could drastically reduce what we see going to landfills there was a, a woman that spoke at the sustainability partners group that we have within the academic side of the university that and it took her a while, but in one year, she created one gallon, a one gallon Ziploc baggie of trash that needed to go to landfill. She started going to different stores uh, that would use, that would get, you know, sell her bulk items in her own containers. She said she w went through a, a bunch of different water bottles, but she determined that it, for her, she was either going to stop buying water bottles or she was going to make sure she brought her own. So, you know, using those types of techniques can make a difference. And that was something he kept talking about was the, the necessity of separating stuff in order to increase your value of how much you're going to make on something. So like white paper was actually you make money off of it, but colored paper, you can actually lose money. And so there's always, there's a problem of upfront cost or uh, in, in terms of time, like are students going to uh, to sort it or are people going to sort it? And the craziest thing he told me is that they actually have people there at the recycling plant sorting stuff by hand. Mm -hmm. Typically, uh, most companies will have machines that'll do it. So it'll, it'll run through like a, like a pool of water, you know, the harder like metals and stuff, they'll fall to the bottom and I'll separate that from the papers and stuff like that. But this is people that are actually sorting it by hand, throwing out stuff that needs to be thrown away, pouring out the liquids that people have left in there. Like there's, it's not like when you put your recycling into a recycling bin, it's not like it's going to go to a machine. There's someone who's going to pick that back up and have to clean up anything that you messed up or have to deal with anything that you should not have thrown in there. And so there's a real human effect to that. You know, I think that's real important for people to understand is that, someone else is going to see your recycling. Someone else may not see your trash because it's going to go into a landfill and get covered up, but someone else is going to see your recycling. So you need to make sure you do the right thing when you recycle it. Otherwise it makes their job harder. How much of this material do you receive that has to go back to landfill because it's contaminated and everywhere up the line, they tell me 20%. So if we're sending, you know, mixed recyclables to a material recovery facility and they're separating this material out and the glass goes off to a glass processor or a glass mill and 20% of it has to be kicked back to landfill, what are we providing? So for us at UVA, we ask the same question. How can we make our commodities cleaner and involve more people in doing so? If they have to deal with someone throwing the wrong stuff in there, you know, they may only get two or, or three or maybe even one bale because they, all they have all that upfront cost of time they have to deal with. So that's a big thing. He really talked about education of people. You know, after I talked with Mr. Beal and he explained all this stuff to me, he was just like, actually, he's like, let me get Victor. He'll take you out there. I was like, that'd be great. And so that's what we did. We went out and we saw exactly how this process works. Y'all ready to go? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Stored into the bags are going to come in off the trucks from various locations of the university. So they'll bring their, their truck in. We'll have tubs ready for the bags. 
the guys will come in, they'll put their bag on the table, and they will separate various trash cans. It's different recyclables. You got your hard plastic one through seven. You got um, plastic bags. You got your metals, your aluminum, uh, steel. You have uh, glass, which goes in the center containers. So we'll, we'll drop the glass in there. Those get dumped into the larger container once that gets filled. Um, each station has a bucket. We'll pour all our liquids out. Because it goes down this first drain right here. Once we get enough of one recyclable, we'll, we'll take it and we'll make a bale that goes over there. It's on the outside. We also have a cardboard container on top. How long does it take you all to get a bale? Oh, that's every day. One, one, one bell a day? No, 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 multiple. One, between one to four. Okay. One to four a day. Plastic takes a long time to compress. So the, the harder, the one through seven plastics, when you put them in the baler, they want to rise back up. So you got to keep pressing down and keep getting the air out of it. Over 14 and a half million square feet of building space of material go through here. There's over 540 buildings on ground, and sometimes there's buildings off ground, depending on where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not always university buildings, or you know, right. uh, or university people in them. Um, but they come through here, and with the guys that go inside, there's three crews, so that's six people. Plus, we usually have two here. Uh, plus, I have two, two crews, so that's four more guys. So you're talking seven. 13, 13 people, 14 people that process that much stuff in a building to call. And, and the reason that stuff is saved is you know, there's really not a whole lot of space there. And you know, Nicholas does a great job of laying everything out and trying to keep it in an orderly manner. Uh, one of the things that was wrong right this building, they put that thing in there. We didn't. Nothing was utilized at the top. They got the stairwell in there that should have been on the outside. So that's taking up building space. We could have had something up top that would have been able to maybe have been like a chute or something. But so, you know, the building is what, it, what, what we got. But we, we do a pretty good job. Everything is pretty laid out. As you see, uh, everything has a certain flow to it. Right. Uh, so we do pretty good. We, we'd love something bigger, but yeah, we uh, give you something bigger. We have a cardboard compactor over here at Fontana, so loose cardboard goes in there. Uh, so there's several operations here. Have y'all had a buildup of plastic over this year compared to last year or anything like that? We've seen a buildup as far as what? Like, well, like that's what we're looking at is like the, the Chinese band on, on recyclable. Now, plastic. on our end here, you're not going to really see an influx of products that we keep here because of the bands. Now, the only thing that the China band is doing is really putting the squinch on, okay, is the, the plastic. Right, that's what I was the saying. The plastic bag binders. Now, there's a lot of that. Now, the main place up in, uh, it's called Madison Heights. That's where the main uh, headquarters is at for Sunoco up there. Uh, they have a lot of stuff, a lot of plastic up there, and that's it's not moving. But they recently just found somebody who is willing to take the plastic bale and do something with it. That used to be a big old hill yeah. right over here. 
Uh, and then you used to be able to go around the side and you go up a dirt road and on top is where they used to have you know a lay down yard so when they said they're going to build us a, a place we were thinking that we were going on top and they stored all the landscape yeah. uh, trees and stuff all the trees were in the yard over here they were planted so they would move them out of there and bring them to the ground that's gone too uh, and now that's, that's that's a huge parking lot right there now and he started talking about this thing called the national sword policy in china uh, as well as this thing called green fence which are two policies that china put in place to kind of restrict the amount of recycling that can come in and you know we were just kind of left with the question of why would they want to do that so why would they want to do that so since 2007 china has been one of the world's largest importers of recyclables like for example in 2016 they imported 18 billion US dollars worth of recyclables paying for trash seems like an unfair deal but it actually benefits both the importers and the exporters exporters like the US western Europe and Australia benefit from this deal because they get a return on their waste which would otherwise end up in a landfill and importers countries like China and other Asian nations that import recyclables get a cheaper and less energy-intensive resource that's easier to process into other materials than um, domestically produced raw goods. So the deal's so good here. Why have things changed? Actually, it's not for economic reasons. It's for health and environmental concerns that were brought to light in multiple documentaries that looked at waste processing in China, which received major support on social media for the health of workers and families in those areas. So pretty much recycling causes pollution in the current way that we do it. The Like Roma was saying, you know, the work conditions, it's not exactly the most safe for the people in there. But also the plants, the stuff that they're putting into the air is actually causing more harm than the help that it causes. And the way that groups like the UN and other international organizations have looked at this is recycling isn't exactly always just... we. Here in the United States, we kind of see it as just like a public responsibility. But in reality, it's a business. You know, there's money with recycling. There's money with the way it's done. And I mean, like what Roma was talking about, there's been a lot of corners that have been cut in China with the way things have been done. And so the pollution is actually a lot higher than it should be. So what are these new policies, Roma? So in... January 2018, China actually released a statement to the World Trade Organization that specified their new contamination requirements and a complete ban on 24 different kinds of solid waste. So all plastic scrap, unsorted waste paper, and a lot of metal residues are no longer even allowed into the country. And then things that they are still allowing in have much stricter regulations in terms of how contaminated they can be. So it has to be 99.5% pure if it is any kind of plastic, scrap paper, or ferrous metal. If it is a non-ferrous metal, it has to be 99% pure and 99.7% purity for any automobile scrap. So this, in essence, means that millions of metric tons of recyclables are now going to be blocked at the Chinese border because they do not meet these standards. And China's a very big manufacturing powerhouse, so what are the economic consequences of this policy change? There's global economic effect 
of China withdrawing from the trading of recyclables. As anybody in an intro econ class would know, if there's a collapse in demand, so if the demand curve for a certain good shifts to the left, then it results in lower prices for those materials. So basically, what people are paying for recyclables is going down, which means that the total revenue of companies in the US, Europe, and Australia that are exporting these recyclables are going down. And if the prices drop far enough, it's actually going to discourage recycling because it's just easier and cheaper to dump everything in a landfill. So all these recycling bins that you see around grounds and all these education programs that have been long-term investments of governments around the world are basically down the drain because it's just no longer cost-effective to recycle if China withdraws from them completely from the market. The stuff we do throw in recycling bins essentially just has a couple extra steps before it goes to a landfill. Some some of it does. A lot. I mean, there's typically what you're going to see a lot of it going to the landfill is your glass because what you need to do with the landfill is you need to contain what goes in it. And so something Mr. Beal talked about, what actually UVA's mission is, is to keep as much waste as possible out of a landfill. Because if you throw something like paper or cardboard, which could actually typically deteriorate if just left out in the wild, it will actually remain like the same preserved if it was left in the landfill because it has no access to air for anything to deteriorate it. And so they actually have a program there where they uh, will weigh out stuff that people can come pick up to determine how much they're keeping out of the landfill. So why go through all these programs? These are profit-motivated companies that are losing a large margin of their profits. Is it really practical for them to go through these programs? And if things keep up, aren't these companies going to go under and our recycling capability just goes away entirely? What's kind of the outlook of all this? There are actually government-funded programs that can keep these recycling plants afloat until they figure out a more efficient way to domestically process recyclables. So, for example, one kind of short-term Band-Aid solution from New South Wales in Australia was a $34 million U.S. dollar program to help local governments in three main areas, basically improving curbside recycling programs, so like standardizing them everywhere, increasing production and use of recycled materials domestically as opposed to exporting them to Asian nations that basically just sell them back to you, um, and funding education programs to decrease the contamination of recyclables that are in your curbside trash. So they, in a study, they found that most curbside trash has about 8% contamination rates, which is way higher than any country and any recycling plant would ever accept. So if we can work on just when the trash leaves a person's house, if it's already separated into the different components and if it's already got lower contamination then that just makes the whole recycling process much more efficient much more cost effective and much more likely to be able to be done domestically so if people who are recycling are just more careful with how they throw away the recyclables or bring the recyclables to plants we could meet the requisite purity ratings that china is demanding of us we could meet the requisite purity ratings, and also it would just be easier to process them domestically, so you might not even have to export them. What are most of these recyclables used for? They're used in manufacturing, aren't they? Yeah, a lot of recycling uh, recyclable materials are used in manufacturing, and so that's typically why most of it has been exported to China in the first place, because it's easier, it's, it's closer to where it can be actually turned into something new. 
But now, I mean, there's actually a lot of manufacturing in other parts of Southeast Asia. And so that's where recycling companies in the United States are looking at now. They're looking at, can we export this to Thailand? Can we export this to Vietnam? Can we export this to Indonesia? But the problem is, is that they're actually following suit with China. They're preparing laws that will actually ban recyclables just like China did. And so there's a fear that that will not be our way out. So let's say consumers just don't listen, that they don't separate their glasses, they're throwing in metals as they go, they mix their papers, or there's a high degree of contamination and that doesn't change. What's going to happen? Well, at that point, it's not cost effective to recycle anywhere. So despite all the environmental concerns, all the health concerns, most of your recyclables are probably just going to end up in a landfill. What can I as a consumer do to make our recycling more efficient? Well, I mean, the first thing you can do is kind of get away from the Band-Aid in itself because recycling itself is a Band-Aid. What we can start using is more sustainable resources, such as like maybe bringing a bag to the grocery store and then reusing that bag when you get groceries. There's a few stores I know that you can actually bring containers to that they'll fill up with like um, some sort of food that you're about to buy. And you don't actually have to use a container that is uh, that would be thrown away or may not even get recycled. This is something Mr. Beal talked a lot about is the need to, I mean, when you get coffee, you know, you go to Starbucks, take a reusable mug. Don't just take the, the mugs that they give you. Bring something. And, and usually when you go to places like that, they actually give you discounts because they want you to, to use a reusable item. So, I mean... Uh, what, we, what we've been talking a lot about is the difference between multi-stream and single-stream recycling. To put this in perspective, if UVA has had issues with recycling its resources, can you imagine how hard it can be in places where people aren't actually educated on recycling? That's why most places use single-stream. You just kind of throw everything into there, and then the company will deal with it. The problem with it is, like we said, is that you don't make as much off of it. And so it comes back to that question that we had in the beginning of who should take up the burden? Who needs to take the time to sort it? Is it the everyday individual's responsibility or is it the recycling company's responsibility? And so that can come down to maybe we need to rethink our infrastructure. Maybe we need to rethink the way it sorts things. Maybe there's a better way that we can do that So then you will actually get those profit makers separated from your just recyclables. That's another idea because, again, you're asking either a few companies to change the way they do things or thousands upon millions of people to change the way they get rid of their waste. And which one seems a little bit more likely seems that it might be the companies might need to change the way they do things. Oh, this isn't all dark, too, because... And you'd hear it in Mr. Beale's interview. He actually thinks, and they're talking about this in Germany, because Germany is also facing issues with uh, being able to export its recycling. Its major export was China. They think that jobs are going to come to Germany. Mr. Beale thinks that jobs are going to come to the United States because you're going to need to sort more of this stuff. We're going to need to invest in in this. Um, And this is, if you think about it, you know, for a long time, A lot of places in the United States have been based on mining and getting resources out of things. And that's what we're doing. We're mining our landfills now. We're mining our trash cans for resources. So there's a lot of jobs in that sector that can be built. It's just the question of are people in charge going to see it that way? And are there any other interesting initiatives or programs that companies are trying? 
So yeah, I mean, so Virginia Green does a great program where you can actually get certified to be Virginia Green with your business that you're actually doing a lot of recycling. Uh, for the individual side, um, there's a company that we'll leave in the description that you can actually ship your recycling to, and depending on what you ship them, they might even pay you for it. Um, but there's a lot that we'll be able to provide for everyone to look at. My grandmother told me 15 years ago that what I was doing here was a blessing because we were not a throwaway society until World War II. Everybody used everything until it didn't have a life anymore. I mentioned that, mentioned to you earlier that I've been doing this for roughly 25 years, but I've been chasing trash trucks since I'm, I was seven. So I'm, and many of us in my division are very firm believers in one person's trash is another's treasure. And I've even convinced trash haulers that they were actually treasure hunters because every one of them, when they got to the transfer station or landfill, they were taking stuff out of what they were dumping and taking it home. Or they would see it before they picked it up and strap it to their trucks, carpets, furniture, whatever. So much so that the Rivanna Solid Waste Authority here locally created an encore shop at their transfer station. So people could bring materials in that they wanted to discard. They would set it aside in, in a pole barn setting and then sell it back to people that might have a use to or an interest in refurbishing it or refinishing it. So furniture, lawnmowers, bicycles, exercise equipment, um, these were all items that were found in this Encore shop. You know, I, I can't say it enough, is that we need to really start thinking about what we're doing to our own environment, or we're gonna end up in the same scenarios that China and some of the other countries found themselves in as a global dumping ground. We might find ourselves in our, you know, living on landfills, which is what happens in all these countries. There are families living on landfills collecting recyclables so that they can sell them to be able to pay for food to bring back to the landfill for their families to eat. Um, they've got their children working in, you know, doing the same treasure hunting as I refer to it as, but, you know, I for one don't want to live on a landfill. The Global Enquirer doesn't always look at local issues, but I'm glad we looked at this one. If you're interested, go ahead and look at the description. There'll be other interesting resources and programs and educational materials for you to look at. And that's all we have for this week. Thank you to our researchers, Tyler Hinkle and Roma Chico for all their work. And as always, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud and like us on Facebook to listen to other episodes. Join me next week when I sit down with Emmy Lockwood and Anna von Spikowski to talk about the ivory trade and conservation efforts of exotic species. Thank you and have a great week.